Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. This episode kicks off our sixth season of Insights Now, entitled A Bonsai View of Investing. And we've decided to center this season around fixed income. With inflation coming down and the Fed very close to finishing the rate hiking cycle, we believe this is a great time to talk about fixed income investing. Over the course of eight episodes, I'm going to sit down with a state of market strategists and portfolio managers, and we'll try to cover all the important bases on bonds. We discuss topics such as the outlook for the Fed and other global central banks, the outlook for the dollar, diversifying within fixed income, and how to think about bonds when positioning long-term investment portfolios. So stay tuned as we try to provide some insight in a pivotal time for the markets and economy. On today's episode, we're going to start off with a broad overview of the fixed income landscape. As we record this episode, we've recently heard from the Fed at their February FOMC meeting, and markets remain volatile on monetary policy uncertainties and the potential for recession. To discuss our outlook on the Fed and provide an overview of fixed income investing this year, I've invited my colleague Jordan Jackson, Global Market Strategist for JP Morgan Asset Management, and our in-house fixed income expert. If you'd like to learn more about our thoughts on fixed income, I also invite you to check out our latest publication entitled Bonds Are Back, which we've linked to the show notes. So Jordan, welcome back to Insights Now. Happy to be here. So let's start by setting the scene on fixed income in general. Last year was a really tough year to be invested in the markets with high inflation and the Fed's aggressive rate hiking campaign contributing to a deep market sell-off in both stocks and bonds. Core bonds saw their worst year of performance in almost half a century. In your view, what led to such a bad year for bonds? Well, I think in part what led to the very challenging year in bonds last year was uh, both the Fed as well as the markets were really caught off guard uh, in terms of the persistence in inflationary pressures. You know, coming into last year, the markets only anticipated uh, four 25 basis point rate increases to come from the Fed. And by the end of the year, the Fed ended up delivering 17 25 basis point rate increases. Uh, they effectively embarked on their fastest rate hiking cycle since the Volcker era tightening back in, in 1980. And so I think in an environment in which uh, the Fed is aggressively tightening rates uh, relative to, to market expectations, that very much contributed to the sell-off uh, in both stocks and bonds. But, but one thing I would remind investors is typically bonds come under pressure in years when the Fed is actively tightening or communicating that they are tightening policy. So if you look at the uh, performance on the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate, the standard core fixed income benchmark for the U.S., uh, bond returns were negative in 1994, 1999, 2013, and 2018, all years in which the Fed was actively raising interest rates or communicating they would like they were in, in, in 2013. Uh, and so I think uh, you know coming in a year in which the Fed, again, is, is aggressively raising interest rates, uh, that certainly posed a significant headwind to both the stocks and bonds uh, over the course of 2022. We're less than two months now into 2023, and already this performance has you know, turned around pretty quickly. What should investors expect this year from bond markets? Uh, well, we actually anticipate bonds can perform uh, pretty well. Uh, I anticipate that bonds will return a roughly high single-digit, potentially low double-digit return year in, in 2023. And and similar to the point that I uh, just made, uh, in years coming out of, of Fed tightening, uh, and so in year 19, 1995, in year 2000, in 2014, and in 2019, the average return uh, on core bonds was about 11.5%. So again, as the Fed finishes and concludes uh, their rate hiking cycle, that should allow first interest rate volatility to settle down 
and that should provide some much needed stability uh, in overall bond markets, uh, supporting a strong returns uh, through this year. So, so bad years are usually followed by good years. Um, but to try to sort of look at this more generally, you know, moving from the bond market itself and talk about the overall investment environment, the macro environment is still clearly heavily in influencing the bond market here. So where do you see things going on in terms of economic growth, jobs, and inflation? Well, I think to some extent, uh, the first quarter uh, might prove to be a bit of a pump fake for, uh, from a growth perspective. Um, you know, when we look at uh, broader growth, we do anticipate over the course of the year, growth is likely going to slow. Um, we could see a, a recession if, we, if recession were to materialize a very shallow one. Um, but we could, uh, the, the, the narrative is certainly developing that we could uh, enter into a soft landing uh, in the economy. Uh, but specifically, as we think about the, the first quarter, you are seeing a significant uh, adjustment in uh, Social Security payments for roughly 66 million Americans. Uh, you have already seen uh, light vehicle sales, a surprise to, to the upside uh, in, in the month of January. Um, and so I, I do think there are certain elements that uh, may be somewhat supportive uh, of growth. Some of the initial housing data that has come through uh, as well. Um, and I think, again, housing had got very, very depressed over the second half of last year. And now I think you're seeing just a little bit of bottoming out and reversal in, in some of the housing data. But still, there's a lot of breaking pressure being applied to the economy over the course of this year. Now, looking at the labor market also, the January jobs report was uh, uh, particularly strong uh, at the headline level. But uh, again, I think this sort of masks uh, some of the uh, uh, underlying weakness in terms of January typically being a very weak month from raw job growth from a non-seasonally adjusted perspective. I think this is more reflective of companies being scared to let employees go, much less companies going on in outright hiring binge in the month of January. Uh, but given this very much still excess demand for labor in the economy, uh, we do think that the unemployment rate is likely to bounce around between 3.4% and 4% over the course of this year as you continue to see that excess demand for labor uh, continue to come down uh, over the duration uh, of 2023. Uh, from an inflation standpoint, uh, we are seeing clear signs uh, that inflation is ro rolling over. In fact, most of the CPI components are actually an outright disinflation. Uh, it's really mainly food as well as shelter uh, that sort of continue to run somewhat elevated uh, relative to recent history. And so we do anticipate that food inflation, uh, other measures of real-time food inflation uh, have started to roll over, uh, looking at uh, indices from the World Bank as well as the United Nations. Uh, and then when we look at shelter costs, we do think that shelter inflation will begin to peak out sometime in the second quarter of this year and then begin to roll over uh, by the back half. And all that contributing to inflation uh, that could very well end the year uh, between a roughly two and a half to three percent run rate. So the consensus seems to be that the Federal Reserve is close to being done in terms of monetary tightening, but they certainly have maintained much of their hawkish messaging. Um, so in your opinion, how much higher do you think they'll go? Well, I think as of today, the Fed could probably squeeze out two more additional rate increases. And so as we know, they've already increased rates by 25 basis points at their February 1st meeting. Uh, we do think that they will increase rates by another 25 basis points at their March meeting. And it does appear that markets are slowly uh, uh, coming up to speed with the potential for the Fed to raise rates at their May meeting uh, as well. Uh, but I do think that's about just as far as the Fed uh, can can really get to. 
um, in terms of just how much higher uh, they can take the federal funds rate in this environment. Okay, so if we perhaps do get a May rate hike also, how long are they going to be able to hold rates at those levels if the economy is pretty soft and inflation's coming down? Well, David, to be fair, I, I actually think that's the more important question. Uh, you know, the reality is I don't think it really matters uh, whether they go uh, pencil in an additional rate hike in May. It's really a question of how long they intend to stay in restrictive territory. And that also is going to have a significant breaking power uh, on the overall economy. You think you'll, you'll now be in an environment in which uh, consumers uh, uh, will have, uh, will have uh, several quarters of uh, 19% credit card APRs. Uh, this is coming out of a period in which credit card APRs were sitting at 13% for almost a decade. Um, in order to purchase that, that, that car or finance that next purchase, it's going to be a lot more costly. Corporations are now going to ha have to tap the bond market uh, at significantly higher rates after they've seen a lot of um, the borrowing that they've done at the, at the outset of the pandemic, that very cheap debt being rolled over uh, to much more costly debt. And so, again, it really is a question of, of how much longer uh, they will stay in restrictive. I think they're fairly committed to keeping rates uh, in restricted territory through 2023, uh, and they may be biased uh, to, to begin to start reducing rates uh, at their first meeting in 2024. With all of that in mind, how do you feel about duration right now? Well, it's really about what markets are currently anticipating. And as of, as of late, uh, you have seen a, a backup uh, in, in interest rates uh, in long-term yields and in short-term yields. Uh, and I think this is a, a reflection of um, the strong jobs report uh, and the markets recognizing that um, or, or getting more in line with what the Fed has been talking about here. And, and that's, again, lifting rates to north of 5% and keeping rates there for the duration of, of 2023. Now, if that does play out, I would argue that a U.S. 10-year that is now sitting at close to 3.7% looks quite attractive uh, in this environment. And so I do think that you know, adding duration to portfolios uh, makes a, a whole lot of sense. And, and within our portfolios, uh, in on days and weeks in which yields back up, uh, we are incrementally adding duration to many of our core fixed income strategies. Okay. And looking at the other side of this, how do you feel about credit? I mean, should investors start looking at high yield or should they stick to high quality corporates right now? It's somewhat of a tricky question because uh, in an environment in which both inflation is going to come down uh, and there is this growing consensus that uh, we may be able to have a soft landing, that actually is a very, very good environment for credit. Uh, and as a result, you've seen credit spreads uh, narrow pretty meaningfully over uh, the course uh, of this year. Now, very much we're we're biased towards investment grade credit. Uh, we still don't think you're getting enough enough compensation uh, for high yield. One of the metrics that I like to look at um, that has closely tracked high yield default rates uh, is the uh, uh, net lending standards in the senior loan officer survey uh, that's conducted by the Federal Reserve. Uh, now, typically over the last three quarters, what we've seen uh, is a net tightening in lending standards. Uh, and you have roughly a three-quarter lag in which you start to see a pickup in overall defaults. Uh, and right now, that relationship su suggests that we could see high-yield defaults in the range of around 4 to 5% uh, in the back half of 2023 and into 2024. So at current spread levels of about uh, 430 basis points, we just don't think you're getting enough spread compensation by investing in lower rated credits uh, at this stage. Uh, but we do think investment grade credits 
um, are providing a, a bit more uh, opportunity. Yes, investment-grade credit spreads are narrow, but yields in investment-grade corporate bonds are still giving you a roughly 5 to 5.5% all-in yield. Uh, and so in that environment, I do think from a technical standpoint, uh, you are going to see still strong demand for uh, investment-grade corporate bonds, again, in an environment in which defaults can remain relatively contained uh, in the high-quality space. After last year's sell-off, bonds are sitting at some of the most attractive yields in a decade. Where do you see the most attractive opportunities now? So one of the areas where we're finding some of the most attractive opportunities is in the municipal bond market. Uh, if you actually look at the tax equivalent yield curve across municipal bonds, uh, it is significantly steeper than that of the inverted nominal treasury curve. And so as we have had a discussion on adding duration to portfolios, uh, for those investors who are in high uh, tax states, uh, can actually use muni, muni duration as a really attractive, uh, a really attractive asset class to begin allocating towards um, in, in increasing duration uh, and in the broader bond market. And then after, uh, we do think that treasuries, uh, again, uh, around this idea of adding duration uh, to portfolios, uh, at a U.S. 10-year of roughly 3.7% at time of recording, uh, I do have a year-end target for the U.S. 10-year of 275 to 3%. Uh, we do think that uh, long-dated uh, treasury bonds can provide a healthy degree of insurance uh, against uh, uh, market, uh, equity market volatility and uh, certainly an outright recession uh, hitting uh, the, potentially hitting the U.S. economy in 2023. So, so those are the two uh, uh, the most attractive opportunities we're finding in the fixed income landscape. All right, and so pulling back even further, if we look at the entire global bond market, um, I mean, let's talk about some opportunities outside the U.S. Are we going to see the dollar come down this year? And do you think that makes international bonds look more attractive this year? Well, as quickly as the Fed left zero, global central banks left negative uh, by way of the ECB. And so I think uh, global bonds are certainly looking a lot more attractive from an income perspective. But I'd argue that the ECB and the Bank of England in particular probably still feel as if they have a bit more work to do in squashing inflation than the Fed. And so uh, the ECB and the BOE uh, appear to be still hiking at 50 basis point increments versus the Fed's 25. We have seen the interest rate differential between rates, uh, global rates and U.S. rates begin to narrow. And I do think this continues to support the notion that the dollar can continue its decline, again, in an environment which the Fed is closer to being done than the ECB versus uh, the Bank of England. Uh, that being said, um, you know, there's still significant risk uh, of, of the ECB and potentially the Bank of England uh, uh, doing too much and hiking rates uh, uh, more aggressively uh, than what markets would, would like. Uh, and that may suggest that global bonds could come under pressure. But uh, I think the global landscape still looks uh, fairly attractive uh, after a decade in which you had a deluge of, of negative yielding debt. Okay. And just getting back to one pretty basic question from last year. Last year, we saw bonds and stocks sell off together. And these are two asset classes which classically have a negative correlation. And the lack of that negative correlation, of course, meant that people, you know, it was just a miserable year for, for balanced portfolios. Do you think that that negative correlation will finally reassert itself this year? And what do you think the risk is that it might not do so? Well, uh, I think it could. To a certain extent, though, I think in the more immediate term, uh, we could still be in an environment in which that correlation remains positive, but to a benefit for investors. I mean, if you think about last year, the Fed was raising rates very aggressively 
inflation was high and rising, and both stocks and bonds sold off. Stocks didn't like the fact that the Fed, the Federal Reserve was being aggressive, and bonds didn't like the fact that inflation was running out of control. Now we're in an environment in which inflation is coming down, and the Federal Reserve may be turning the curve uh, a, a bit sooner. And so I think we, we could see an environment, and we've already seen that play out through January, in which both stocks and bonds are positive. And so investors are, you know, they don't like when that the, 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 the positive correlation works against you, uh, and they seem to forget when the positive correlation works for you, which it has been over the course of January, and it could, it could stay that way uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, but as I think we enter into a more normal environment, um, I do think that that negative correlation will reassert itself uh, and, and bonds will be the zag to the equity market zig in portfolios. Well, Jordan, this has been such a helpful summary of what's going on right now. So I guess to summarize from an asset allocation perspective, how should investors think about positioning bonds within portfolios right now? And, and what sort of levels of volatility or long-term returns should they expect? So I actually think investors should either be equal-weighted bonds and stocks, so a 50-50 allocation between stocks and bonds in portfolios, or potentially an overweight uh, within, uh, within bonds uh, in, in 2023. Uh, again, I'd anticipate just given a lot of the uncertainty about uh, the, the economy, uh, about what earnings uh, are, are likely to do, uh, I, I think stocks will deliver a roughly mid-single-digit return year. Uh, but I think, again, bonds might deliver a slightly better return year over uh, the course of 2023. And then from a volatility perspective, uh, one of the things that we've highlighted in our outlook uh, that when the Fed is closer to the end of their hiking cycle, you tend to see interest rate volatility settle down. And that's exactly what has happened over the course of the year. And so if you were to look at the MOVE index, uh, which is essentially the VIX, as VIX is for equities, uh, the MOVE index is for uh, the bond market, you've actually seen uh, the, the, the MOVE index decline uh, by about 25% so far this year. So interest rate volatility uh, really settling down pretty significantly relative to the movement that we've seen in rates last year. Again, I think this pr provides some much-needed stability uh, in the bond market, and bonds are back is how I would uh, sum up the conversation. Also, a, a better year for bonds in 2023. Thank you for joining us, Jordan, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for having me, David. Please tune into our next episode, and until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in markets and the economy, to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.